Scottish football is the best ball. So what's English football? The worst ball. I'm Sean McDonald, you're listening to Blethered and my guest is Laura Brannan. Laura's a football media producer and has worked at Celtic Football Club, Copa90.com and Motherwell Football Club to name just a few. We discuss her career progression and the highlights over the years from her experiences at Celtic and what it was like to deal with some of the players, to being sent to Paris to cover the World Cup final of 2018 and most recently creating much lauded content such as the David Turnbull documentary at Motherwell. We discuss Scottish football fan culture, why are fans treated a certain way in Scotland and how can the authorities work closer with clubs and fan groups to improve the match day experience for fans while boosting the national economy. We talk about how you could argue that our consumption of football is 10% the actual game itself and 90% the drama, characters and storyline that live within it. And Laura gives her thoughts on the women's game and why it doesn't quite pull her in in the way that the men's game does. If you enjoy Blethered and you want to support the show, gain access to exclusive episodes, new shows and bonus perks, then the link to the Patreon page is in the episode notes. All support ensures that these episodes keep coming thick and fast, so a big thanks to the people who have already pledged their support, because it's helped me deliver so much more already. Apologies for the audio on my side, not being as good as it could be, my mic input was playing off again, the downsides are recording during lockdown. As always, if you enjoy the episode, feel free to share it. Cheers. So Laura, your career has been very varied. People have watched a lot of things that you've written, recorded or created, probably without even realising. So I'd quite like to go through that chronologically um, and talk about where you started and, and where you've ended up. So suppose first job, first proper media job was working at Celtic Football Club and that you started that back in early 2010. Yeah, it was. It was um, six months after coming out of uni. Uh, so I studied the journalism degree at Caledonian University, which nowadays is a really good degree to get. I think some students coming out of it are so much more experienced than some of the old pros that you'll get um, two decades ahead of them. But back when I did it, and this is making me sound quite old now, um, it was still a very early course. And the kind of the students coming out of kind of my class and the classes the kind of years around it kind of came out thinking I don't really feel like I've got the experience to go into this field so a lot struggled with it I think only maybe two or three of us actually made it into journalism full-time so six months after graduating I'd done a few um free match reports for a local paper in Renfrew actually doing submitting games and that was kind of first John into kind of covering football kind of gave me my first taste of it of I mean I, as I say it was free it was what you kind of had to do back then is when you first graduate you kind of whore yourself out to anyone that will take you just so you've got something for your CV in your portfolio <laughs> um so they, after a couple of submitting games I was like I'm actually loving this I'm loving kind of doing live games and being here and I kind of I was a bit of in awe of I'm getting asked to go to this ground and watch football mm. and this is kind of a job so yeah I got the job at Celtic um, I was a multimedia reporter was my title and started the February, halfway through the 2009-10 season. So it was for context, it was just after Robbie Keane had signed on deadline day. 
and it was t- the end of Tony Mowbray's time. So my first press conference that I covered, um, I went in as a as a sort of taster, like I kind of just get a feel of the place, meet everyone and stuff. Um, so I think it was like a week before I started permanently, and it was the day that Tony Mowbray announced Scott Brown was getting the captaincy. And then the first game I covered was actually at Ibrooks, and it was the game when um, Edu scored in the last minute. So Rangers won one day. And at the time, my kind of my role that day was to write the match report for the website, and it was to basically get published at full time. You got like a five minute window, and of course, that goes and happens. And yeah. <laughs> your entire right. match report, your tone changes entirely. And I, I mean, I was twenty one years old. And I was caught in the headlights, a rabbit caught in the headlights. I was, I was, just, I froze. And I think my boss at the time was a bit like, what have we done? Who have we hired? He does not know what she's doing. Because I was just like, uh, 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 uh. Um, uh. That was day one, but it got a lot better after that. I've improved a lot since then. See, that's, you know, you hear about very experienced, you know, journalists with, with three decades of experience talking about that when something happens right at the end. Because I suppose you do kind of second guess a wee bit how you project is going to happen but also how difficult is that because objectivity is hardly one of the main pillars of club media is it really because you know it's it's never going to be overly critical so how hard is that to write that because i would want to be writing well for a start scott brown was a discreet like i would just be wanting to hammer the team because i'd be fuming i suppose that's why you wouldn't have a a mad celtic fan in that position (laughs) to be honest yeah, it's in very basic terms, it's club propaganda that you're doing. Absolutely. Anyone who works for a club is doing it. It's, it's so tailored to being positive. Um, and to be honest, I, you did see that quite bluntly at Celtic because there were things that happened in press conferences where we were basically told don't don't report on it. That the press will do mm-hmm. that. That's the media's job. We don't have to reflect that. So, for example, there was a time when um, Gary Hooper was talking about the referees um, and the scandal of, I think it was after the Dundee United game at Tannadice. Yeah. And it caused the whole referee revolt and all that. And he's sitting there talking and you're kind of sitting through the press conference going, oh my God, this is a massive story. They've all got their headlines. Whereas I take away my, my recording and I write up what he's saying about playing St. Johnson at the weekend and <laughs> saying that it's going to be a tough game. <laughs> and you're totally bypassing what is actually yeah. the story. Um, so... It was a, kind of surreal in that sense. And I think that's actually what eventually kind of got me by the end of my four years. I kind of got a wee bit bored of just being that positive spin. And I kind of wanted to dip my toe into more controversial subjects and yeah. kind of cover more of the, the news element of things um, and kind of get away from just kind of sugarcoating everything. Mm-hmm. How much did the, you know, from when you started to when you left, how much had that whole operation evolved? Because you were working in multimedia, so as you say, you were writing for the Celtic View, you were doing things, you know, recorded interviews, audio. You know, how much did that evolve and was that something that you saw happening across the industry at the same time? Yes, my my job primarily was to write for the Celtic View and the matchday programmes. So it was a lot of written side of things and it was interview after interview with players, with former players, with anyone really that had a story worthy to tell. And then we were also doing things for Celtic TV. So that was either recording the interviews as well or being in the studio like on a match day, being like sort of kind of the guest analyst 
um, mm. even co-cons I did at some some stages, which was horrible. Oh, wow. <laughs> that was not, yeah, that's not my thing. No, I did that at the new camp actually, and I absolutely hated it. It was too much pressure. <laughs> I was, was I was scared to blink. The, was that the six-one game that you did that? No, it was actually one where was it Alonso scored in the last minute. It was two-one. Oh, the two-one when Sammy yeah. put his one up, didn't he? Yeah. Did Sammy yeah. put his one up or did Sammy was make it one, one each? each? Or, I can't remember if it was one nil or one each. It was I the one he scored in. Yeah, it was the one that they scored in the last minute. That's, that, that's some experience, that, to say you've done co-coms at the new camp. And I've been, I've been in that media box. It's really, really high up as well. Yeah, you've got proper bird's eye view of it. Aye, I mean, it's, was, it's, it's, almost the same as, it's almost the same as Easter Road when you're on the roof watching the game. What What is the... I've heard people talking about at the Celtic Park where you have to actually walk on the roof as well to get to the gantry, or is that just for if they're doing, like, Sky or something? The the gantry, I've actually never been up to the gantry. I've the only time I've been on the roof at Celtic Park was to actually to abseil off. <laughs> and it was for so a charity. Oh, was it like event. a charity thing? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um I've not been up to set up the gantry. Um but as far as I'm aware, it is it is something to do with that. I mean I should probably know that because even now the one the guy I work with is then also obviously from Motherwell and he goes up there when we go to Celtic Park. So I should know this. Um but I'm not entirely sure of the just the kind of journey up there. It is it's very high up though. <laughs> I suppose as well, one thing that kind of interests me is the, the female presence, shall we say, within the sport has obviously grown a lot more. But even in that that media side, obviously, you've got Kerry Keenan running the team at Celtic. You've got um, even the, the girl who presents, I think, Rangers TV. I think she might be a Jordi, I'm not sure. Uh, you've got people like Laura Woods, Connie McLaughlin. Like, you know, there's, there's so many, and obviously you at Motherwell. Has it always been that way, or is that something that you've seen growing throughout time you know that more because let's let's be honest i'm not saying it's 1950s scotland <laughs> but it is a a heavily male dominated environment for top to bottom i mean yeah. first of all i suppose what i want to ask what have your experiences been in that has it been largely positive or sort of ambivalent or i don't know you, you tell me to be honest, it is largely male dominated, and that's something I've not really got an issue with. Um, I'm the least feminist person you're probably going to meet, and I'm not offended by if there's ten people in a room and ten of them are are men, or nine of them are men and the other one is, is myself. Um, to me, you get you get their merit. So if you're good enough, that doesn't matter what gender you are. Um, I can't really kind of say if I've seen it grown much, um, and that's purely just because I'm not really looking out for it. Mm. Um, at press conferences you kind of had your token one or two um, I always found it like with myself if I ever went to press conferences it would be myself and maybe Alison Robbie um, now Alison Conroy <laughs> um, or Connie McLaughlin um, and then there would maybe be um, Alison working in the when she was at the Even Times at the time Alison McConnell so you, you kind of you're on first team term names obviously with everyone who works in the media because it's such a tight-knit group in general and then when you're not seeing many females around, it's even more of a tighter knit group. But mm. to be honest, it's not like you'd kind of look around the room and go, oh, there's another, there's a, there's a female sitting there, I don't know who she is. Um, you just kind of get on with it. And it doesn't really <laughs> doesn't really bother me or phase me. I've never really had a problem with it in any way. I've, I don't think I've ever really had a problem in terms of my work. I don't think I've had any anything hold me back in that sense or kind of push mm-hmm. me on. It's just kind of, kind of just gone with it, really, and kind of use my, my skills and my talents to try, try and get me through. What about women's football? Do you have any interest, or what, what's your thoughts? Um, I have 
absolutely zero interest in women's football. Controversial opinion there. That's what 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 is it that you're just not into? Is it in terms of the, the football or is it something wider than that? Or? To be honest, there's nothing really draws me in to really kind of devote my time and interest to it. So the way I see it is with football in general, um, in my life, and I don't mean working in day-to-day football just now like I am at Motherwell. Um, I just mean as a football fan, I consume football all day, every day. So it's waking up and going on Twitter and seeing the media, football media, talking about what's happening. It's going on Instagram and seeing footballers and people in the football world posting photos and videos of them training. It's listening to sports sound podcasts when I'm on my way to work. It's um, sitting all day in my group chat, talking with my friends about the latest stories that's happening. And it's on a Saturday afternoon, it's listening to open all mics and it's, or it's going to the games as well. And to be honest, so much happens in Scottish football that it's so exciting on a daily basis. Even like just now when you've got the shutdown, there's drama, like <laughs> extremely batshit mental things is, are happening. When there's not a ball being kicked right now and everyone is talking about these massive stories. And to me, it's just I'm, I'm consumed in what happens day to day. I'm excited by it. I, I see personalities, whether it's footballers or managers or, or journalists or pundits. You get to know these people, and obviously not personally, but you get to know them and you feel like you know them. You, you know who you side with and who you don't, who are the baddies, who are yeah. the goodies. And it's... These all these narratives through the game that it just absolutely draws me in and it excites me and it gives us something to talk about and laugh about and joke and, and get upset by and angry at and all your emotions go to it. Whereas with women's football, and I, I get that it's very much in the early stages, so in, in, in maybe 10, 20 years' time, someone will be sitting here saying exactly the same things about the women's game. But right now, I don't feel like we've got that. And I don't feel that connection with the players, with the teams and the storylines. And it's, so it's just really a kind of personal preference. Um, I'm drawn into the men's game and that's where all my time and money and effort and, and emotions and energy goes to. Mm-hmm. I know what you mean, though, uh, because I, I would argue that for, for the, in the, the whole landscape of football, only about 10% of it is the actual football that takes place. And as you say, the rest is the, the fascination with the characters and the personalities and the dramas and the arguments. Like, any time, if you tune into any type of sports media, again... Five ten percent of it is discussing the actual game, and the rest of it is discussing the politics and and what's going on. I suppose women's football is at that evolutionary stage. Um, you know, if I I, I've, I think I have like a, an instinctive inclination to support the national team because you know that's my country and I, I want to support them and see them do well. But that maybe that's something that, that maybe it'll come with time. But there has to be that, as you say, that. F- further narrative around yeah around I mean to me especially uh, with supporting Scotland because Scotland is my team and that's what I'm so emo- what I'm so emotionally connected to to me it's um a big part of that is being in with the fans and being part mm-hmm. of the crowd and and just being that supporter and it's it's being there joining the songs wanting to kind of drive the team on looking at their away games and going I want to go to that I want to be in that crowd and and really looking towards like tournaments and you just any diehard fan of any club will, will look forward to either a tournament or a, a cup run or a league campaign and, and they, they feel it, they go, I, I just want that success. I just want to be at that ground, be at Hamden or anything and be there on cup final day. I just want to see the, the team lift the trophy. Anything like that. You, you feel it so deep down that I just 
if I went to a women's game, I would just be kind of standing there as a tourist, kind of going, right, okay, well, fine, entertain yeah, me, I, but I, I'm not I really for you. I completely understand what you mean. You know, I was able to watch it and be, I suppose, somewhat impervious in terms of I was disappointed when they didn't win, but I certainly wasn't getting stressed out. Um, it has actually kind of made me realise, though, that, like, so if I've been to watch games in Spain or England, Germany, um, I can watch it and, and take the game in and remember what happened and be able to see the patterns of play. But I suppose watching Celtic, and I'm, I'd imagine Rangers fans will be the same, it's not that pleasurable an experience. In fact, it's horrible. Like your stress levels are through the roof. You can't even. There's so many games that I've watched, like say old games for the past, and I rewatch them and I think I don't remember us playing this badly. I thought we were excellent. I don't remember this happening because while you might take it in in the moment, you're so stressed that I think it's if your hippocampus must just shut down and you're not retaining any. Yeah any memory because your brain is going to like survival mode it's horrible so I suppose it could actually be argued that it's a far more pleasurable experience from a football point of view to watch a team <laughs> I, I find, a team that is New Year's of course I find like see when I go abroad and I go to a game and I love going to different games just for the experience but I find it is for the experience I find when I go abroad I don't look I don't go to see what the football is on show like when I went to I was in Canada last year I was in Toronto I went to a Toronto match and it was I don't know if you remember I tweeted about it at the time. It was a photo. It was a sign in the stand. It was like the ultra stand, and it was saying, "We we encourage." It wasn't just we condone. It was we encourage the use of pyro and standing mm-hmm. and singing and banners and smoke bombs and everything. And it was that was what I went for. I went to be in there and experience it. And it was the same when I went mm-hmm. to a game in Germany. You we actively looked looked out to see which stand that would be in and we stood and we had a pint in one hand we had a, a hot a sausage in the other and we were right. jumping up and down and it was the, the, the what I remember from that game it was a, a Mainz game against Bayer Leverkusen and to be honest I probably couldn't even tell you what the score was um I couldn't tell you a single player that played that game or who deserved to win but I do remember the fun I had and with the away mm-hmm. from the home fans and I do remember what happened was at the end of the game the players came over and they stood on the capo stands and they joined in and they led the chance with the fans good 15-20 minutes after full time and I'm just standing there thinking this is amazing we'd never get this in Scottish football but I want it so badly and that's what I took away from it. Now why don't we get that in Scottish football because we're obviously seeing with the introduction of safe standing at Celtic Park in, in the last few years uh, and we've seen abroad that pyrotechnics, when managed safe, like safely and properly, you know, they're fine. Why are Scottish? Um, this is a political question, which I doubt you'll answer. But I'd like your 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 take on it. And why why are they criminalised? Why are they why are we treated like absolute scum? It it just does not add up. It's a very good question, and it's something that I've I'd love to push further um, to try and to bring in, at least test out safe pyro is something that I'm really quite passionate about. I, I I will admit I'm not as clued up on the ins and outs of what the laws entail and mm. what we what hurdles we need to get over. Um, it's something that I really kind of need to kind of spend more time breaking down and looking into and, and kind of seeing who is that, if I was to personally do it myself or if maybe like Mother was a clubber to do it or even just in general passing it on to other people to do to kind of break it down and look at right this is what is stopping us and this is who we need to speak to and this is the test that we need to do 
because there are safe options and there are countries like in Scandinavia, some clubs are, are testing out safe pyro and they're looking at different temperatures um, or it could be like the number of people that hold the pyro, the, the smoke mm. bombs or the number of people like it's limited or it's, it's these people that lead like the capital stand or whatever, they, um, they are trained to do it rather than just letting anyone do it in the stadium mm-hmm. when they feel like it or just it, it just feels like it needs a lot more open-mindedness I think a lot more clubs and safety officers need to kind of look at it in general and go right this isn't a blanket no and this isn't a blanket it's dangerous because there's a lot of preconceived and misconceptions towards it and I think we need to kind of highlight what's right and what's wrong and it's really just a lot of kind of testing that needs to get put into practice I think it's definitely a multifaceted debate and there's so many things that really antagonise me and get me riled up. First of all, I would say press representation. The lack of continuity from the Scottish media winds me up beyond what I could put into words. And an example I'll use is they'll say, look at an incredible pyro display from the Greek Super League or from Scandinavia for Germany. And then it's, Celtic and Rangers fan once again are letting them, it's like, fuck you, man, like, take a side and, and choose one, but you cannot, like, I can't say, you cannot say, look what happened here, it's amazing, look what happened in Scotland, this is terrible, it's the same thing, there's, I think there's a snobbery and a class, it's a class issue, I would call it a class issue in terms of how football fans are being treated, even right down to the way, you know, if you, if, if you put them side by side with how rugby fans are treated or how the sport of rugby is dealt with. You're not allowed, not allowed to drink in the train, but it's all right for rugby fans. Rugby fans are allowed drinks in the stadium. And then you suggest that maybe football fans are allowed it and someone will say, oh, yes, no, but uh, the last time there was actually a riot 40 years ago, mate. Fuck off. I like, think times change. I know. And I think a big part of it is also the, the supporters that are against it is maybe down to how they like to experience football. So you'll get... I mean, there's so many different ways to experience football nowadays. You can, I mean, you've got the family section, you've got the, the old school fans that just want to go in. Like like my dad's, for example, is one that he just likes to go in, sit down, watch the game, don't talk to anyone, don't join yeah. anything. Just, it's like a cinema experience for him almost. Yeah. And then he leaves. Whereas then you've got the other fans that are there to purposely create an atmosphere. They're there for the atmosphere and to create that mm-hmm. noise. And you don't have to be for each other's way of consuming football but you mm-hmm. should at least be open-minded to say well that's fine that's what you like you do that in your area and we'll do what we do in our area and just sort of have that understanding that there's different parts of the grounds that can be for different people it, it doesn't have to be one universal stadium that's I mean don't get me wrong an entire stadium of of um smoke bombs and pile displays would look amazing <laughs> but it's never it's never going to be for everyone and that's fine so sure. yeah, have your family stand and have your quiet and have your noises and that's fine. But let's just be mindful and respectful that everyone pays their own their ticket, that everyone pays entry and they want to consume it the way they want to consume it. So if it's safe, like, it's legal, yeah. let's look into it. I feel like clubs are, I can only use Celtic as, as an example because that's my personal experience, but clubs also have, have got a wee bit to answer for. For example, when you see in the invincible season which culminated obviously in May 2017 when Celtic were awarded uh, or were given the trophy against Hearts um, in the last game of the season. And I was in the standing section 
and they unfurled the, I think it said in the heat of was, but I can't remember what it said now, but it was the green and white banners, and then there was about six or seven people in the pyro. It was amazing. And we were singing <laughs> in the heat incredible. of Lisbon. It looked incredible. Everybody was loving it. The fans were loving it. The club used it in official merchandising. So here's the key point that we have to hold on to. The club used it in official merchandising. So they, they recognised how great it looked and the atmosphere it created. Then they banned the Green Brigade or they banned the standing section for like two or three games. And it was that weird at the start of next season. And it's like, so if you're completely against that, then why are you then capitalising on that image for financial gain? You yeah. cannot there's have also, it both ways. There's also an element of, um, when you look at what happens in Scotland, and I, I know it's very heavily policed in Scotland, but when it does get through the, 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 kind of the loopholes and fans do manage to sneak things in, like, for example, the, the, the pyro display at Celtic Park in that Hearts game, it looks amazing, but it's so small and low-key to what you see across Europe. And everyone kind of goes, oh, my God, this is the worst thing ever. This is so dangerous. And you go, well, hold on a minute. That is done very much within fans who are aware of what's happening and are, are supportive of what's happening. So whether or not it's legal, that's a different argument. But when you look at what's happened in the likes of Eastern Europe, it is mm-hmm. mental. And yeah. I mean, I've, I've covered games. and I, can I, We'll go into it with the Copa 90 chat. But, I mean, I've, I've been in the heat of pyro displays where – it doesn't feel safe, but mm-hmm. these it, they're getting away with it, and I don't know the logistics and everything in terms of the laws in all countries that they're doing it in, but it's on such a bigger scale that we have to, in Scotland, look at it and go, right, well, we're actually very well behaved, yeah, and this is very low-key. So we know there's a desire for it in some elements of supporters, so let's look at what we can do to accommodate these fans, and let's build it up slowly. It might not be... You know, it might not be like Hamburg versus St. Pauli right from mm-hmm. day one, but let's at least try and build it up and, and kind of go, right, what's possible? How do we get around this? And who can we actually hand over the reins to to be sensible about it and make a display? I think there has to be also a, a degree of common sense or proper evaluation uh, put in place uh, with regards to what football fans and football clubs contribute to the Scottish economy. I'm pretty sure she, uh, Celtic, I'm doing Sean Connor again, I'm pretty sure that Celtic commissioned a study, maybe through Glasgow University or Strathclyde University, to to analyse the impact of, you know, the, the financial contribution that Celtic and Celtic fans made each year to, you know, to other towns and cities across the country when travelling to, you know, tax contributions to everything, even on match day, footfall of local businesses. And if you apply that, the same will apply to Rangers because they've got the same, almost the same amount of fans at Ibrox every second week. Hearts, Hibs, Dundee, Dundee United, these clubs that take fans all over the country. Um, if that was to be taken away, I think the Scottish economy would definitely feel the, the impact of that. So that's probably something else I would hope that would be used as a, a bit of leverage because something, something has to change because it's infuriating. Even seeing buses being pulled and police are absolutely boasting and tweeting about it, saying, look how much, can how many cans of tenants we got off them? I'm like, well done. Like, I feel yeah. really safe. What a great job you're doing. Clap a clap of handies for you. So something definitely has to change, but we'll, uh, we'll shift on for that because I'm just going to start getting a wee bit vitriolic the more I get wound, <laughs> wound up about it. But you mentioned Copa 19. I suppose that definitely ties into what you're saying that with football, I, suppose, I, I would claim that 90% of it is the stories and the interesting anecdotes and... I suppose holding that mirror up to society in terms of football, 
And that's pretty much what Copa 90 does. How did that come about and what was your experience like working there? Yeah, so I mean, with Copa 90, I'd, after Celtic, I went on to work for STV. Um, so I was very much in the, the in journalism and I started to, towards my end at STV, get into more kind of what behind the scenes. Um, we kind of did a bit more adventurous, creative work and I really enjoyed the kind of production side of things. Um, so I kind of chose to kind of come away from journalism and kind of put more emphasis on the production side of things and really kind of look at how can I get more experience here. And this role came up in London and it was a, a producer role. I thought, this is this is perfect. It was a really exciting chance. I'd watched a lot of Copper 90 videos previously. I'd actually, um, some of the, the content that we did at STV, the more kind of creative um, stuff that we did, was based on Copper 90 ideas. Right, okay. So I was a bit like a kind of a wee fangirl, <laughs> get my chance, <laughs> um, and got to go down there. And the thing is with them, so they, if you're not kind of aware of what they do, they're a startup company. They're about maybe seven or eight years old now. They start purely as a YouTube page, and they've kind of grown out across social media now. Um, and they also do some brand work, making content for different companies, mm-hmm. um, like kind of big sport brands and things. And they, um they don't have any rights to match footage at all. So they're not about what actually happens on the pitch. They're all about what happens in the stands and yeah. away from, the, like, well, you turn your back to the pitch, basically. You turn around and watch the stories and there's so much going on in the stands to the point where we covered, I was there for the World Cup, the 2018 World Cup, which um, as a Scottish girl living in England, <laughs> in the 2018 World Cup, it was... Um, Hard. <laughs> it was. I lived in England in the '98 World Cup, and while I was only seven, I remember it being absolutely hellish. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, it was. It could have. It could have went a lot worse, to be honest. Um, <laughs> there were there were days. There were dark nights. Put it that way. <laughs> there was a very long dark walk home from a pub. Um, I'd actually. So I covered what what my kind of role was in the 2018 World Cup was to cover different supporters of different nationalities. So I went to Croatia um, to cover, it was their quarterfinal uh, against wow. Russia. Um, so I was in the square in Zagreb, the main square. So it was basically, imagine like George Square, absolutely packed yeah. out after, couldn't move. Um, and I was on a kind of a van, a top van they made um, for the kind of the camera guys. So I was up there, elevated maybe about 12 feet above everyone. <sighs> Bloody and it hell. was just a sea of blue, white, and red, and it was insane. Ah. So the big, massive screens up. This was a game that went to penalties for a place in the semi-finals, and I, I got so emotionally caught up in it that I think by the end I was nearly crying <laughs> with all the, yeah. the Croatian fans. Um, so did that. I went to um, went to Paris for the the, the actual final itself um, to kind of soak up the atmosphere in the fan zone at the Eiffel Tower, and that came about purely because we were all chatting about what we were going to do at the stage before the semi-finals and I said to one of my bosses at the time and he was actually he's a Scottish guy so he completely understood me and I said to him like I can't be in the country I can't be in London if England are in the final so either I get the day off and I go home or can I go to either Paris or Brussels depending on who gets the final can I go there and cover the fans can I can I just do something that means I'm not in London because I can't take it, I can't take the nerves. And he was like, yep, yeah, that's fine. Um, so I agreed to go to Paris and got to cover the, the fans there in the fan zone. Um, and then 
for other games I was going around different pubs in London um ones that were kind of specific to that nationality so in for example like um Elephant Castle is a very kind of Colombian area and obviously obviously England played Colombia so I went to one of the pubs there and it was rammed full of Colombians and it was brilliant because one of the guys actually turned around at one point and went um why are you here why are you not like why are you supporting Colombia because I think he just thought I was English because of I was speaking English and I said oh no 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 I'm I'm Scottish and he went oh (laughs) Oh, you hate the English too. Oh, you're come, come with us. Come with us. <laughs> Welcome me into the group and we're giving me drinks and everything. So Do you know what's hilarious? Been... What's hilarious about that in terms of, so we're talking about the experience that football brings and that sort of emotion. As that was happening with you, I was in Estacio de Francia in Barcelona, and which is this big trade station, and they opened up a big, large part of the concourse and they put a big screen for the Colombian contingent there as well. And I watched it with them, and the exact same thing happened. So see when, I think, the Colombia equalised uh, with the corner at the last minute. I think it was. I think, that, it was I think that's my own. memory. So I was going, and I was with all my English pals, and I was going mental, and I was in celebrating and going off my <laughs> nut with the, with the Colombians, and they did the exact same thing. They turned around and said, Oh, so their basic point was they said, "Are you taking the piss because you think yeah. England are still going to beat us?" And I was like, "No, no, I'm from Glasgow." And then the exact same, they were like, "No way, you're coming part of us." And as much as it was, it was absolutely brutal. And then the English gave us it, like my pals gave me absolutely stinking when they eventually did go through. And we had a laugh about it and stuff. But I don't remember the game. I don't remember much. I don't remember what happened. All I remember is that experience that I had. Oh, it was absolutely incredible. I, I... I had to walk home. I don't know if um, anyone who knows London well, but Elfrank Castle's so south of the river, and I lived mm. in Hackney at the time, which was a good hour's journey in the best of times, but the mm. English fans basically were partying in the street, and the buses couldn't get through, the, the tubes were rammed, the, there was just everyone was just spilling out onto the roads, and I was just in this dark, dark place walking home, like I don't want to look at anyone, I don't mm. want to hear anything, blasting out music, like angry music, <laughs> trying to like drown it <sighs> out. But then I kind of got my my joy when England played Croatia. And it was this kind of similar idea of I didn't want to work that night. So I'd kind of begged my way out of it and said, look, I need to just sit on my own. And very luckily at the time, I, I lived with um, three other people at the time. And one of the girls, she's massive into football as well. I'm still really good pals with her. She was at Hyde Park for the, the big fan zone of all the England fans. Oh, right. so this was their chance to book their place in the final. So she was in Hyde Park. And the other two that I lived with weren't in that night. So I was very lucky that I had the flat to myself. And I sat watching the game on my laptop. And I I don't remember being so emotional for watching a game where it wasn't my team playing. <laughs> and when, when Croatia, did Croatia, Croatia took the lead and I screamed so loud that my neighbour started banging on the walls because oh, <laughs> they were that angry at me. Fuck. And then, so then England obviously equalised. I was going through my mind. It was going to extra time, and it was right at the. It was what was the scenario? It was oh no, it was so Croatia were winning. It was in extra time. It was in England. were trying to get to penalties. So they were looking for an equaliser to get to penalties. Mm-hmm. And right at the very end, now I was watching on iPlayer because I didn't have a TV in my flat. So I was watching everything delayed. But my phone was going crazy with everyone basically telling me what was happening because they were watching <sighs> on TVs. Right. And people that weren't even into football, my friends were texting me because they were watching it. And right at like the 90th minute or the, the 120th minute, England had a, I think it was a corner or a free kick. They had a set piece. 
and they very, very nearly scored. I started getting texts with, with people going, oh my God, oh my God, oh fuck, 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 like swearing, like constant swears. And I just saw all these texts coming through. And I before they'd even took the set piece, I walked out and I walked into my bedroom and I was pacing around crying, going, I can't take this, I can't, I can't cope with England being in the final, I can't go to work on Monday, like what am I going to do? And I came back in and the full-time whistle had went and I'm going, what's going on? <laughs> it's finished too, one of I'd convinced myself that it went to penalty. Aye. And I, honestly, the relief was I've never felt relief like that in my life. It wasn't joy for Croatia. And it wasn't hatred towards England. It was just pure relief as a Scottish person Aye, to not have to put up with England being in the final. Like, this is definitely not xenophobia or anti-Englishness on my part, but I had a similar experience because that summer I'm hanging about with all English people and what would happen is we'd be on the beach and then they would go out and watch the game. I'd come, I went and watched England-Sweden with them and then we're back on the beach and they're all steaming and they just looked and sounded like boozed up Brits abroad. They've all lived there for 10 years, but it's like, football's coming out. I was oh. like, oh, you fucking go home and all them, man. Fucking hell, I know. <laughs> That song... Uh, I know. Well, do you know what, though? I do think that England, obviously, to traditionally have, have always, um, their team selections have been at the behest of the big names, you know, to the, the detriment of their, their team. But that seems to have really shifted. I mean, under Gareth Southgate, they seem to have changed their, their grassroots approach. And they, they obviously won the under 17s World Cup. I'm pretty sure they've had success at other age levels. And uh, I think it looks to me as if. Well, it's impossible to predict who's going to have success at a major tournament because anything can happen. There's so many variables. I would suggest that their chances of, again, getting to a final at least are a lot higher than they, they previously have been, which is, uh, there's a real irony about it that when there's less Rooney's, Lampard's and Gerrard's and, and some more, I suppose, almost faceless players that they could go that far. But football is a funny old game. And in terms of what you're saying about You'd really enjoyed going to those those um, experiences you know, in Croatia, being in Paris, going to Eastern European games and, and what have you. What were the other standout highlights for you that, that you were getting to experience or things that you got to, to learn about? I think that uh, one of the other kind of standout ones at COP90 was a project we did in conjunction with um, a travel like a, a travel page in America. So the, it was a, I think they were called Brand USA. God, I can't remember now, to be honest. Um, so the, the aim was to showcase what food and sport culture was like in Atlanta and the surrounding areas. Nice. And as somebody who absolutely adores going to America, this was an absolute dream. To be given this project, I was like, whoa, what have I done to achieve this? This was kind of like <laughs> my, my biggest, my, my honour. <laughs> I was like, whoa, I've got really kind of, I'm quite like kind of humbled by this um so there was a lot of work that went into this and this is probably one of the biggest learning curves for me as well um it was a 10-day trip to atlanta and we also did a kind of few day trips outside of atlanta as well mm-hmm. um kind of did a wee bit of touring around got a, a big camper van for it a big um, rv sorry um but it was a, a team of us and the team must have been a good kind of maybe eight ten of us that went over and i kind of had to do all the production side of things so the amount of work that went into planning it all and making sure it all ran smoothly was a massive learning curve because you've got to kind of be on top of everything uh, we had a what we call as a fixer over in Atlanta so somebody who who knows the area understands the kind of logistics of where to park and what mm-hmm. the kind of work permits are like and stuff and the kind of difficulties that we might encounter so we worked with a guy called Jeff he was brilliant um doing video calls with him planning it all in advance 
what restaurants they recommended us going to and what sports games and things. And we ended up going to, we went to Atlanta against Chicago Fire in MLS. And then the next day we went to Atlanta Falcons playing an NFL game. So it was our two kind of main experiences. And then after that, it was a lot of eating wings, a lot of chicken wings, (laughs) which made up a massive part of the video. (laughs) Um, Any time I go to America, I always come back with a pure ball face because you just no, you, you, no matter what you try, you try and eat healthily. You're still it's, it's deep fried. There's loads of sauce and there's three times more than what you actually need. But you still oh, finish yeah. it. I, I always make a point of buying a big oversized hoodie when I'm in, in America, so I can wear it on the plane home. And I feel like I've got a big rubber ring around my belly, but it doesn't matter because I've got a big fat hoodie on and no one can see it. <laughs> no, that was good. That was a, that was a, as much as it was fun um, content. It was also massive learning curve because it just kind of it helped me learn how to kind of take control of a, a project and be in charge of people and really lead because we had. Um, with different what you call obviously social media influencers um mm-hmm. at the time and who were also kind of presenters for the company um and we had three of them with us all very different personalities ranging from very cooperative to not very cooperative and you mm-hmm. kind of just have to learn how to deal with these characters um which kind of has helped me in time learn to deal with players as well because they're kind yeah. of similar in that sense social media influencers are kind of like players where they are they know they're a personality. They know they're mm-hmm. there to, they know people know of them and what they mm-hmm. do can influence other people. So you've just got to try and kind of manage those egos. And some are completely non-existent and they're, they're fantastic and some are complete nightmares. So it really helps mm-hmm. you kind of juggle and, and learn just how to deal with people in general. Do you know Mark Snell, don't you? No, of him in a working Mark's capacity. Aye, not, kind capacity. Of, not, a, not friendly terms or anything, but just kind aye, of, aye. he was at the SFA. Yeah, well, there you go. There, there you go, Mark. Laura Brannan says you're a prick. That's basically let's read between the lines. <laughs> no, <laughs> no. So the reason I was going to say that, so Snell's one of my best pals, and he's now working at mm-hmm. Frame PR with Daryl Broadfoot. Oh yeah. And uh, one of their clients is I think the so the UEFA the Euros European Championships, which have also obviously been uh, delayed, but the Champions League and uh, Europa League, I'm sure. But UEFA one of their clients, and Mark has been working with a Spanish influencer. This guy's got like 1.5 million followers and I can't stand him, right? I hate the way he speaks, but what Mark keeps doing is sending me his Instagram stories and because he's saying it in Spanish and he's like, got to tell me what he's saying to make sure that he's following the script and what they said. So we got chat about this guy and I was like, mate, I actually hate this guy. Like, I hate the way he talks and everything. He was getting paid, I don't I don't want to divulge any detail, he's getting paid a lot of money oh, to, just to do this. Just to, all he has to say, right, in Spanish to his followers is, uh, UEFA are showing like old uh, classic Champions League games and he has to be like swipe up to watch it now this oh. guy is getting eye watering money for doing a fucking 30 sec- 15 oh, second yeah. Instagram story and he, he said he's like oh, I want more, I want to be paid more for it I'm like, are we chase yourself? When, when, when we did that Atlanta trip, um, one of the influencers we took with us was um, Josh Denzel from Love Island yeah right and the, the reason was that was because they wanted to try and get out to a different audience it wasn't purely football so he was very mm-hmm. much of kind of the entertainment audience and the, the money involved is, is just absolutely insane I mean it blew my mind to see, like see figures involved and you're just like these people are just putting out Instagram stories like that's that all they're mental, doing they're getting paid to go to America for 10 days eat a lot of good food go and watch a lot of good games and put, post about it on Instagram that like, is a dream. That's that's jobs nowadays. People get paid for that. That is ridiculous. Oh, so either we 
do you remember I had a wee Copa 90 thing when uh, I do and my, my, yes and my predictions came true so what was Brendan Rodgers had a bad start to the 2018-19 season and the questions were do you think Celtic will win the league we want to win the treble which I said they would do and I said that you would have to be a fool to bet otherwise so um <laughs> any networks are listening I'm available for a lot cheaper than Josh Downs if you love anyone you, uh, what is that's obviously come to an end for whatever reason or you've decided to come back up the road Motherwell how did that come about because people are absolutely loving the Motherwell FC content just now yeah so I'd kind of kept my foot in the door with like the Scottish football in general really um, when I was there in London so whenever I was back home I would um, just help out on a Saturday afternoon go and um, film at the games um, I kind of knew the boys in the team, obviously from being in Scottish football and everything. I, I kind of knew everyone around the place, and just kind of they were like, "Yeah, of course, come on in." Obviously, we'll they, like clubs like Scottish clubs will take on like volunteers. It's not uncommon to do mm-hmm. unpaid work on match days, um, varying levels, um, and I absolutely loved it. I mean, they obviously got something out of it because they were getting somebody to film games for them, but I was getting something out of it because. My problem with one the one thing I didn't like with Coppa was I didn't get to go didn't get to cover live football I didn't get to go mm-hmm. to games at weekends so I got my weekends off and I know that sounds mad but I hate having a Saturday off I, <laughs> I I loved working on a Saturday and to me this was my chance to really kind of whenever I got a chance come back up and keep going to games on a Saturday just be involved in the environment so when um, it was Lewis Irons who was working at the media department at the time he moved on to the SFA. And the, the role came up and just kind of like different things, kind of calculating kind of where I wanted to go with my career. Um, I'd love to eventually one day work in MLS, um, be it for MLS in general or for a club somewhere down the line. And it's not something you walk into, especially not with visa restrictions in America. Mm-hmm. So I saw it as getting back into club football again was probably the ideal path. And I'd always kind of said after Celtic, I'd love to try and do club football, but maybe do it at a smaller club, but have more responsibility. Mm-hmm. So Motherwell was absolutely ideal with that. I knew the, I knew the guys, they knew me, and I knew I was going to get a lot more responsibility in my role to kind of take control and shape it the way that I wanted to. So the opportunity came up, and it's a very small team. It's, it's just three of us in the media department. So it's myself, Grant Russell, who heads up the department, and Alice O'Reilly, Ali. Um, does the kind of graphics side of things um, and speaking to them we kind of stripped it all back to basics really this time last year because it was a, it was a year ago just there um, at the weekend that I started and right, we stripped it all that. back yeah we stripped it all back to basics and said right what does this club stand for what are the philosophies the morals what are the, the values um, why do we do things why are we doing this what who's our target audience well, and what really kind of broke it all down. For as a club? Well, who are Motherwell? What do they stand for? I feel as if I've got an idea, but you obviously will have a lot of a clearer uh, definition of that. Like, what what are model, Motherwell's morals and standpoints? And yeah. answer those I mean, questions for me if you can. <laughs> we we broke it all down, um, and in very very basic terms, we kind of see it as Motherwell look to better you, and mm-hmm. they look to to make people better, and whether that is. A footballer himself, um, a player who's maybe lost his way, um, has maybe kind of some troubles in his career and needs to kind of find his path again. Whether it is a youth academy player coming through um, and graduating into the first team and bettering them into being a full-time professional. Whether it's a manager 
that's struggling or even even a member of staff that needs another uh, opportunity at something um or or someone maybe in the community as well um just in general people we do a lot of kind of work with the motherwell community whether it is um we do some suicide prevention stuff mm. uh we work with there was for example a cafe in motherwell that that work with teenagers with special needs issues or learning difficulties and they um, give them a chance to work in this cafe and really kind of learn um, and build skills so that they can then use that to find another job elsewhere. Um, mm. So we've kind of highlighted things like that and just kind of highlighted the, the people, the players, the community in, in itself and really kind of Motherwell as a town um, and just kind of looked at how do we, the, the club, make people better. Yeah, that, that's definitely an element of good feeling towards the club. Um, and I don't know if that's just been a gradual thing, if that's always been there, but it's been heightened. There's quite a few things with community involvement, I'm sure, with helping assisted homeless people, obviously, and suicide things, because strangely, in Motherwell, this, in the surrounding local area, there seems to be an epidemic of suicides, particularly male suicides. Can I put a finger on it? Is it, let's be honest and call a spade a spade? Is it hammering, you know, coke too much? is a mixture of things with it is and it's good to see when a club because a club takes a lot from a community whether it's resources whether it's players in the in the local area and then potentially discarding them i know that's just a, an aspect of football but clubs take a lot so to see a club giving a lot back it's going to generate a lot of good feeling um, yeah and this is we try not we're, we're very kind of an open club in that sense and and i don't mean that in terms of just oh we, we, we reply to people who messages it's things like mm-hmm. um we talk to, to different organizations about what our anti-suicide message could be um we talk to people who are involved as well so i mean like we did one at christmas time where we we worked with families and friends of of people that had died and it's a very challenging project to take on but we speak to them and say this is what we'd like to to send this we'd like to send this message out do you think it's appropriate are you comfortable with it is it something you agree with having been there and went through it yourself personally. So we, we do talk to different people. Um, mm-hmm. It's an ongoing thing as well. Um, even things like we had a, a boy, I think, had messaged one of the players just saying he was struggling a wee bit. And one of the, the players just messaged back and started having a conversation with them. And at the end of it, it was very much the, 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 the fan was like, look, you've made me feel amazing. Like, thank you so mm-hmm. much for just taking time out of your day, even just five, ten minutes just to speak to me. That was so lovely. Um, so little things like that, which doesn't maybe seem like a lot, but can go such a, a, a far distance and in such a massive way mm. in terms of helping somebody who's struggling at that time. Inclusivity and openness in it and human decency and combined can really, as you say, go, go a long way. Do you know another thing, actually, this is a random thing that's just come back to me, but does Fur Park still have that sign that says... Something like don't smoke at the match or say no to cigarettes <laughs> or something like that. Ah, uh, you're thinking That's of the, the one that was um so it was above the, the old uh, uh, it's above the, the, the Hunter Sandy stand and it uh, used to say keep cigarettes away from the match. Aye, uh, that was it. Keep <laughs> cigarettes away from the match. Uh, I don't know one. when it got changed. I don't know when yeah. it got it's not there now. I don't know when it got changed, but I remember when I first saw that when I was younger, being yeah. like I loved it. I was like, that's so clever. It's got a double meaning. I, know. I, know we, <laughs> I love that. A wee, a wee PG, a family-friendly <laughs> double entendre there. Uh, I was actually, I was in the Motherwell youth system when I was younger under George Adams. So that would have been like oh, 2002, wow. 2003. So I've got an affection for Motherwell. And then I was the biggest James McFadden fan because he went to my school. <laughs> 
he was from my area and he was absolutely tearing up. I was de- de- devastated when Martin O'Neill did. He just you... pulled out the stops. Were you in the Motherwell youth team with John McStay at the time? No. It was a weird one because... This is a guy I went to school with and I remember he was in the Motherwell youth team around that time so I was just wondering if it was going to be a coincidence. Might have been, but it was like, so it was for about a year and a half and then it was me and a few of my pals and then we ended up going to play for Dunfermline. Uh, but it was training on a Friday night, so see that uh, that AstroTurf pitch, you would drive in that wee road and then you'd walk in this back stand and then you'd go up into one of the gyms and get changed and it was it's quite funny they just put a bag down and we had the training kit was like a motherwell strip from maybe three four years previous they're all massive none of, <laughs> like none of it matched but yeah absolutely loved it because it was a professional club and i always remember getting like a milkshake and a nutrigrain bar at the end and think wow this is like <laughs> and i'm like this is free it's like you're grabbing two, two bars on the way by like there's a real absolute wider uh, so I, I totally loved it would it in terms of the content i suppose i'll start with this so i've got a question from, are you aware of the Rincon Escothes? Do you know what that is? No. No, I think like so, <laughs> Rincon Escothes is a group of Spanish guys um, who are all mad Scottish football fans and they've all got their, right. their own team. Okay. Uh, so they do the Spanish podcast. So it's all in Spanish and I'm in the group chat and I've taken part in a, a couple of podcasts. And these guys are fanatical um, and support a, a, an array of different clubs. There's a wee group of Celtic fans as well, which obviously is who I, I'm closest to and we talk to most. Uh, and one of the boys, Adri, has asked about the David Turnbull documentary. So for anybody yeah. who's not seen it, it's a David Turnbull documentary, which is about 46 minutes, 47 minutes long. It's absolutely <laughs> brilliant. And it, it charts his period of not signing for Celtic and to making his comeback and I was absolutely rooting for him, buzzing for him, you know. <laughs> it's so well told and it, it, it's very much Copa 90 to me. How So Adri wants to ask how that idea came about and how he ended up actually executing it. Yeah, so I mean obviously the drama of last summer um, unfolded and we'd kind of talked about it as a team, just we'd love to have done something um, there was no concrete ideas at this stage. And we just kind of thought I'd love to do um, just a long-term project. And to be honest, it's something that um, it was myself and Grant had spoke about when we both worked at SCV together. Mm-hmm. And we talked about how good it would be to follow, be it like a manager for a season. So like sometimes when like a new manager signed, we'd always kind of float the idea. And it was very much, it was never going to happen when you were at STV, but it was a sort of, oh, could we follow them for the year and then do a big project like at the end of the season? So it was very much something that the two of us are, are so big on ideas that it was a pie in the sky at that stage. But now that we're together at Motherwell, we've got that kind of free reign, so to speak, to to actually take our ideas and, and yeah. put them into practice. And we kind of saw this as a perfect opportunity. Um, we've, we've been working a lot on branding players um, and kind of cementing their kind of personalities and their personas and, and how the public perceive them. Mm-hmm. And with David Turnbull, it's it's no secret that a transfer for David Turnbull would be massive for Motherwell. He's not going to yeah. be at Motherwell forever. Um, and we've got to be realistic with that. And it's it's always the case. It's a, it's a selling club. It's a conveyor yeah. belt. And one day he will move on and the club ideally will get a lot of money for it because it's mm-hmm. an academy player that we've produced through the, the since I think he was nine years old when he joined the club. So for us to kind of go, right, well, hold on a minute here. We've had the chance to sell this boy for a lot of money it's been taken away through no fault of his own no fault of our own it's a completely unlucky freak 
incident that's happened here. Mm-hmm. And there's a story here because there's a story here to kind of show that David himself has recovered physically, he's recovered mentally, and he's also f- absolutely ready now to firstly come back for Motherwell and make a mm-hmm. difference and make an impact. And then when the time is right, he's ready to then go on for an equally big transfer move mm-hmm. to what the likes of what Celtic were offering and what Norwich were interested in for him. That, so we, we kind of wanted to showcase, one element of it was to showcase him as a person, um, him as a footballer, and show the journey he was on. But it was also to showcase that he's back and he's fit. And for anyone in the future, when the time comes, to never have that niggling doubt of, well, he's injury prone. Oh, well, he's had that big serious injury. Oh, we don't really know how he'd cope. Mm, should we just kind of look at somebody else? Mm-hmm. So it was to kind of balance it all up. And the fact that we've, we're lucky we've got a lot of trust with the, the coaching staff, the medical side of things, everyone at the club. But it's such a small, tight club behind the scenes that everyone trusted us to just go with it. We, we spent nine months filming everything and anything. Things that you'd never see a light of day, conversations that were never going to get aired in any way. Yeah. And at first, there's very much that caution of, don't put that in. Oh, don't say that. Oh, and you kind of have to reassure them, look, it's fine. We're all going to go through it with a, a, a tight comb at the end of it. You're yeah. all going to see it before it gets published. There's not going to be anything. I, I can't hearts back what we're seeing with Celtic. It's, it's club propaganda. So there was yeah. never going to be anything negative in it. Um, and then as time went on, everyone, be it David himself, <laughs> Uh, David the, uh, Henderson, the physio, and the coaches, it, it just kind of became second nature to them to have, well, me primarily, because I filmed about 90% of it, just <laughs> yeah. kind of have me there with a camera, kind of being the shadow in the corner of the room, <laughs> picking up everything, and they just kind of, we just got on with it. There'd be days where I'd, I'd, I'd text David like the night before and just say to him, like, what are you doing tomorrow on training? Um, I'll, do you mind if we come along? He's like, yeah, sure. And you just kind of come along and you're in the background and he just kind of gets on with it. And mm-hmm. everyone was just so used to it by the end of it. And it kind of now feels like a big empty hole in my life where I'm not going to David Turner to follow around with a camera. I <laughs> know, but, but then, then again, it's a chance for you to create another story and to sort of narrativise it. I suppose, you know, people love a comeback story. People love to see those intricacies yeah. and secret wee compartments uh, and sort of... <laughs> bits of people's lives that they wouldn't otherwise see and it humanises them and it creates this other element of interest and I suppose it helps and it brings us back full circle to what we said about the women's game that that's possibly something that media outlets could also work on whether it's internal or external in terms of of promoting the game because that's it. Even like in Scottish football and men's football we we don't see that from clubs we don't see Mm. like in-depth documentaries where we're following certain players and I mean even looking down south you could count very much in single figures of the ones that you could really pick out and and they're they're big ones they're ones that are like on Netflix or Prime or or big YouTube channels and you, yeah. you don't really see your average player or I've, I mean, everyone, yeah. goes crazy, everyone goes crazy for Sunderland to die because you're seen behind the scenes how and, bad is that uh, intro though can we talk about that <laughs> what was that how bad is the intro? The, the intro, intro for that show. Like, I don't know if I'm the only one in thinking that, but see the intro for that. Sunderland until I die. Winds me up. Hate it. Is it. Do you mean the bit where they talk to like a, a separate person? Um, no, and it's the about song. something. No, no. Oh, the song. All right. I thought you were going to intro. No, no. The song. The intro. I hate it. It's like you work your fingers to the bone. Piss off, man. That does not reflect Sunderland Football Club. It's so relevant. 
No, it doesn't. I'm like, what is this? Sunder until I die is absolutely brilliant, though. I've loved it. And do you know what? Here's probably the best example I could give in how much football fans are interested in characters. There's a documentary. I'll probably get hammered for this, right? And I'm going to have to balance it out by throwing a bone at Celtic fans. But there's a documentary about Paul Gascoigne when it starts off with him just recovering from injury uh, and he's in Rome and it culminates in him moving to, to Ibrox, uh, which would have been, what, 94, 5, 6? I don't know, I was a baby, I was a young. At mid-90s anyway. And it was utterly fascinating because you're seeing behind the scenes, you're seeing in the dressing room, you're seeing in the, the team bus and his, while I did not hold any affection whatsoever for anyone who was featured, if anything, I held a lot of disdain. It was utterly fascinating. The Stephen Gerrard one that was done for Sky One years back, um, 2005, that would have been, because it was just after they won the Champions League. There's a, there's a couple of David Beckham ones, but as you say, the Maradona one, the Ronaldo, I believe there might be one about Messi. They're, they're utterly fascinating, and it is the characters that draw us in, and the football is sometimes a byproduct or, or just yeah. like a side effect of what you're actually interested in. People are also suckers for just seeing behind the scenes. Yeah, like they're, they're they're getting to go places that they normally don't get to go, and and we've kind of toyed with it um in our match day coverage where we sometimes go to the dressing room at full time, mm-hmm. and we film like the the gaffer chatting to the players and kind of giving the kind of round up and it's the initial interactions with boys coming back into the dressing room again and like patting each other on the backs and things like that and that's great, but that content that we provide is often maybe. 15 20 seconds in an overall kind of highlights reel highlights mm-hmm. package um roundup of what happened in the game whereas like the david turnable documentary was all about that one of the bits i actually enjoyed the most about it was on the day he came back the match his his return match and, and it was following him. Yeah, so it's following him that? from the car park into the dressing room yeah. and that was uh, that i didn't film that part and for me watching that back when i was going through all the raw footage I was, I was like, this is brilliant. I'm, I'm actually loving this. I'm loving seeing how all the boys are interacting with them. And it was great to actually see them interacting because he could have you know, walked in there and nothing would have happened. And you'd be like, all mm-hmm. right, okay. It's nice footage, but fine. But it was actually mm-hmm. nice that like the boys were actually commenting on him being back and they were reacting. I think it was even a point where it was Mark Gillespie had sat down next to him, the goalie, and he kind of looked up and he kind of went, you're joking. As <laughs> and it was that sort of, you could see his face like, no, and David kind of replied and just kind of had that wee cheeky smell of uh huh, and it was just yeah. lovely to see that. So like, yeah, that whole match day section for me is like my favourite bit because it was just uh, so emotional. I suppose that also even to take that even deeper. Then I don't want to become too Freudian about it, but it it does show a certain level of fragility or emotional how much players can emotionally impact each other or how much that they are human who react just the same as the way as anybody else does and. Again, I don't know if that, that just takes you in closer. I love it, I love it, and I hope that other clubs yeah. will So when you see the documentary, the first whole kind of opening section, which is maybe about 10, 15 minutes long, and it's him reflecting on the summer, and it's quite an in-depth, deep conversation. We spoke to him, I think it was about July time, July, August time, and we, we really kind of, we went to his house and we dug in and we, it was it was uncomfortable for him, and mm-hmm. we did warn him beforehand. We we're like, "There's going to be things that you don't like discussing," and it was very clear he'd never said it to anyone before. Mm-hmm. And you could see moments where he was kind of struggling for words, or he was maybe welling up a wee bit, and you're kind of like, 
right, this is getting to the heart of it. This is you want to see that emotion because you want to see you don't want to hurt somebody, but you also want mm-hmm. to see just how much it affected them at the time. And that was why it was important to us to to do that then rather than sit them down in, in March going, Okay, tell me about the summer. Because then yeah. he's like, Well, well, I'm over it now. Yeah, so there's probably, probably been a real psychological benefit to him because another thing that you know, any if there happen to be any players listening to this that have gone through injuries, there'll be doubts. Am I ever going to be back to my best? Am I going to keep earning money? Is this going to be me? What do I do if things don't go back to normal? They're they're isolated in terms of they're not training with their teammates all the time and they're not actually doing what it is that they they normally would do. And you know, as as men, West of Scotland, you can come up with all these tick all these boxes of people who are just unlikely to talk about these things and possibly one of the things that leads to real a real deterioration in somebody's mental state uh, and god forbid you know suicide attempts are, are actually successfully carrying that out so while he may not realize it it's been an element of therapy for him to, to actually speak about that definitely and i think the, the physio david henderson spoke about it quite well in the documentary where he was talking about there were dark days and there were days where he would question am i ever going to get over this is there ever going to be light at the end of the tunnel and it was interesting to hear how the physio would deal with that. And he was saying things like, sometimes you just sit and have a chat with him for a wee bit longer, just talking about everyday life. There were other days where you would switch up a wee bit and you'd do something different with him. You'd maybe take him to the pool instead of going out on a bike. And there was just different, or, or some days he would just send him home and go, look, just go home, play PlayStation, be with your girlfriend. Because mm-hmm. he would just know that some days he just wasn't mentally ready for it. He couldn't face it. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to hear, like, I mean, David Henderson's so experienced. He's worked. He worked with Rangers back in the day and stuff. He's he's dealt with big players and big injuries, and he knows the drill. So it was interesting hearing his perspective on it. And I thought he came across quite well to kind mm-hmm. of explain the the kind of mental element of it as well as the physical side. I think any lesson that anybody could take from that as well is that we're all going to experience setbacks in life, or there's going to be things that are going to happen to our detriment and. Progress and recovery is not linear. There's going to be days where you're sky high. There's going to be days where you're, oh, yeah. really, or you're it's like your, your confidence or your, your your mindset is is through the floor. But the comeback is always on. The light is always at the end of the tunnel. It does take a bit of persistence and perseverance from the individual. But it's something I always say is the comeback is always bigger than the setback. But yeah. you have to be the one that holds on and, and gets yourself there. Yeah. Do you know what? The, the biggest regret for me is I'm... It, it was really frustrating because in my mind this entire nine months it was going to be this Hollywood comeback you know he was going to come on he was going to score the winning goal it was going to you know be against Celtic and it was going to be like go full right. circle and in reality life's not like that in reality he came on as a sub in a game when we were losing or I can't remember what the score was but we lost the game uh, yeah we were chilling at that point and it was very much I don't know if you want to say it's a panic sub but we needed them at that time it was the stage when everyone was kind of looking around going we need a David Turnbull in this team we need a creative attacking player who's going to make mm-hmm. something because we need to get back into this and obviously we were on a bad run at the time and it's not the sort of environment you want to bring them on in mm-hmm. when you're 2-1 down and you're struggling against St Mirren and things are bad but he came on and frustratingly he didn't turn it around mm-hmm. and he didn't get that he didn't set up a goal he had a good chance as well but like he didn't get that opportunity, which would have just been the absolute Hollywood ending, and I almost had to try and get it over in my mind because I was I was quite 
not upset, but I was frustrated after it going, how are we going to make this a big ending now? Yeah. And I had to really go over that that stumbling block and say, well, wait a minute. It wasn't a Hollywood ending in terms of the team, but this isn't a team story. This is David's story. And for him, he's back. He's wearing the Mullable strip again. And to him, that is a Hollywood ending. Mm-hmm. And when I spoke to him at the end of the game on the pitch and I'd said to him beforehand, I was like, look, if we if you do get on, I will speak to you and it will be the, the last thing we see in the documentary. So this is the last word. So go big, go like talk for as long as you want, say whatever you want, but this is your concluding message almost. And I said to him, I kind of, it felt strange because I was kind of pulling him aside and it almost felt like, um, I, I mean, I do these full-time interviews with the players all the time on the pitch, but in that environment, it felt like I was almost pulling aside the actor and everyone else was like the, the kind of... Supporting the extras. cast. Yeah, um, they were kind of doing their own thing, but I was kind of pulling aside the actor going, this is what you say, this is what you do. And <laughs> I kind of, I said to them, like, I was briefing them and I don't normally brief the players when I kind of catch them at full-time. I just kind of said to them, like, Tell me how it felt. Like, what's your reaction? Whereas with him, I was very much, I kind of said to him, like, don't tell me about the game. I know it's frustrating. I know we lost. And I know you wanted to come on and make a difference. But don't talk to me about that. Tell me about your journey. And it was kind of weird, kind of briefing him on that. And he did. And he was kind of saying, like, he he kind of had it in his head. He was like, look, it's been eight months. It's been 34 weeks or whatever the the numbers were. And he could drain them all off. And it was great because that gave him his Hollywood end. Mm -hmm. And... That kind of once I was over that stumbling block, and once I kind of realised that, and I put music to it, I was like, "No, nah, this is this is a kind of an emotional end," to it. and I was I was really happy with it in the end. As you say, it's his individual story, and while that might not have been a Hollywood ending, you could possibly, if you're trying to grab any positives from it, is to say that it was almost, and I mean that's the most respectful way possible, almost a bit of a damp squib in terms of that moment coming on the pitch. But then again, that's another benchmark for him to set for himself it's another target for him to set to say right we've got back you know it said when people train for the Ironman competition that the achievement lies not within completing the Ironman competition the achievement lies within being at the starting line and having put in the work and the the um progress and the, the, that achieve that is the achievement within itself and that is his yeah. Ironman starting line is getting back on you can only hope that the, the, the guy kicks on. He seems like a really good guy. He's a, certainly an exceptional footballer. Celtic and Norwich would never have been fine out for him. Uh, had a bit of bad luck, but his Hollywood story, I suppose, will be that continuation of um, of his of his season. Bit of a shame that the coronavirus kicked in, but I suppose everybody's in, yeah. everybody's in the same boat. But, you know, it was great to see that comeback. And speaking of comebacks as well, somebody I'd like to ask you about is that you had a cross paths with at the start of both your careers. Tony Watt is obviously in the first part dressing room. <laughs> what type know, of... What type, he's, a, he's a big character, isn't he? What, it's, it's actually Tony Watt and Declan Gallagher as well. We're right, um, okay. both at Celtic. Declan was more kind of um, youth level at the time. Um, and then Tony came on. I think I think Tony and Declan kind of overlap maybe by a season. Um, right. And then Tony obviously pushed on a wee bit more. Um, so it's, it's actually quite strange having them both around. Um, right. It feels like they're kind of reunited in some sense. Um, but yeah, I mean, Tony being around is interesting one. And it's, it's really frustrating because of what's happening just now and the football being off because, because he is a short-term signing. And we really, really wanted to help him kind of cement his kind of story in football. And I feel mm. like with Tony, he's been on this kind of, this journey of he has a journeyman almost and he's been at clubs so many clubs now uh ones that haven't worked out for various reasons and he's kind of got himself this reputation of 
he's maybe lazy or he's got a bad attitude or he's just not very good and he can't that's why he's going around different clubs and everything and he's not quite making an impact and I feel like it's quite unfair because mm. Tony's a very very dedicated footballer um mm. and I, I saw it back at Celtic and I see it now as well speaking to him and everything he is so dedicated in terms of showing people what he can do um and a big part of that was interesting because I had a chat with him about what he wanted to showcase and some strikers only want to show off their goals and the, mm. the kind of what makes him the star man. Whereas Tony was a complete opposite. He was like, No, I do so much work off the ball that I want you to show that as well. I want to show I want you to show what I can bring to the team. And I kind of really admired that because that's a side of things that people don't see. Unless you're mm. really watching a certain player for a certain length of time, you don't see the hard work he puts in off the ball. And it's something we're very capable of doing because we can film him doing that. So it is a shame what's happened because there's been what eight games where he could have completely made a name for himself and he's mm-hmm. just not really had that opportunity. So I do hope he gets another chance when it all kind of comes back, be it this season or next season, to kind of really show the fans and turn opinions around and kind of because I think he lives off this Barcelona goal and I almost feel sorry for him in a way because it's like he's more than that. Mm-hmm. Yes, that was a big moment and yes, that put his name hit his name out there and put him on the, the worldwide stage and everything, but he's not going to live his entire career off that one goal. He's still a young boy and he can still do something with himself. Everybody obviously fills in the blanks of the story and as you say, they don't see the day-to-day, they don't see the conversations that take place, the incidents, the bad luck and whatever. And with the goal, the Barcelona goal, I think for me, because being a Celtic supporter, I'm always going to look favourably upon, upon most people at Celtic. And so the conclusion I've drawn is that it's... Maybe it has hung over him a wee bit because he was still young. You know, there was still a lot of, um, you know, the developmental stage was still very much in full swing. Form isn't going to be as prolific uh, as people would somewhat maybe would expect. And you cannot hold a momentary, you know, obviously something that happened in almost a nanosecond and then say, well, this is the benchmark for how his progression, as we said earlier, progression progress isn't linear uh, and it's you know it's not going to be just up and up and up there's going to be those dips and there's there's human pressures and everything else that's the thing and I think maybe I I don't know the ins and outs of what was said to him at the time um, but I can kind of second guess that there wasn't a lot of um, kind of one-to-one tuition so to speak in terms of psychology um, Mm -hmm. and how to handle it because when you're, I mean, what age was he? Was he 18, 19? He's so young. And you think of what you, you were like at 18 years old and suddenly you're the, the biggest talking point in Scottish football. You're you're seen across Europe. You're you're hitting the headlines and you've got this pressure now to to really kind of live up to that expectations. And <laughs> I don't know if anyone really sat down with them to say, look, there's going to be ups and downs and this is how you deal with it. And your whole career is not going to be like that one moment. Yeah. So... I can understand why there might have been more pressure on his shoulders and how maybe he mentally didn't deal with it properly at the time or how he maybe got carried away. Um, and I'm, I'm very much speaking generally here because I don't know what Celtic said to him. I don't know what he himself would say about the situation. But these kind of situations, you need to have guidance on it and you need to kind of coach players mentally as well as physically. Absolutely. And I think that's what was missing. I would say societally we're a lot more literate with the... Um or understanding or aware of the, the psychological impacts and issues and things that can happen. But this was eight years ago, but I don't remember this 
you know, the sort of general public discourse about mental health and or that whole umbrella term just didn't really exist eight years ago. And I remember um, hearing David Beckham speaking about his goal for the halfway line it's, uh, against Wimbledon where he lobbed Neil Sullivan. And he said the first thing that Alex Ferguson said to him was, get on the bus and don't speak to any pressure or speak to anybody. And he at the time thought this is a case of him being just trying to take the limelight away from him, but it was a case of, no, you're not having your head taken into a different headspace. You're a footballer who scored a good goal. It's done. Forget about it. It was yeah. all right. Uh, and you just wonder. Uh, only, only Tony can answer that, I suppose, but you just wonder if that... Oh, you broke up. If it oh, sorry. Uh, I was saying that only Tony would be able to answer that. Whether it would have yeah. benefited him, I, I can't really remember if he did speak about it. I imagine he would have because the press. Would... I don't know, but I know that obviously the press still talk about it, fans still talk about it, and I think that's why when he first signed for Motherwell, we were kind of almost kind of protective in a way. Um, we didn't want to just put him up to press conferences mm -hmm. the same way we would with other players, um, because we knew the way that the questions would go. Um, we knew it would be comparing previous clubs and previous experiences, and there would always be that one question about Barcelona would creep in. And we wanted to kind of almost shield him in a way to say, right, well, go out there and make an impact first. And then when you talk to the press, you've got a story to tell. You've got uh, a motherable experience to bring into yeah. it. And it, it kind of changes that narrative around almost to him saying, well, this is why I'm here. This is what I'm doing. This is what my intentions are. Mm -hmm. Rather than the press kind of putting words into his mouth. And again, annoyingly, never really reached that stage because of football shutting down. Aye. Uh, it's like you're a footballer. You're not a press um, a sort of press figure or a, a public yeah. figure, so to speak, an entertainer going to play football first. Um, how have you coped Motherwell-wise in terms of creating content? Because fans are probably looking for more to consume now than ever. Have you managed to keep up your production and output? Yeah. Or is it... It's, oh, I mean, it's challenging. Um, I dare say everyone's kind of faced the same challenges. I think everyone kind of went through a same kind of routine of, right, we'll go through um, looking at older footage and kind of mm -hmm. digging out the previous games and stuff we actually haven't quite dabbled in that yet we kind of earmarked some games to look out and we're kind of holding off because we're, see we're seeing we've done this for the long haul so we're kind of thought well, let's not rush into it in week one yeah. um i've been kind of keeping in touch with the players i've been kind of saying to them look we obviously need content but this is a good chance for you to keep your own profile up and mm -hmm. keep yourself in the limelight make sure nobody forgets your name um so that's why like, I don't know if you saw the Richard Tate work home workouts. Um, no. Which was something we did. So it was, we kind of did it as a kind of jokey die into the Joe Wicks kind of theme that everyone was yeah. going crazy for. And this has a, a time scale as well. It's never going to last forever. So we did five with them. It was every second day we put them out. And he just recorded himself at home. He's he's such a, a kind of fitness fanatic. He's a, right. the gym, gym freak, so to speak. And he'll do, if anyone that follows him on Instagram will see that in his own personal time he'll, he'll do three workouts a day anyway <laughs> and he, he he wants to get into doing PT when he finishes football so we kind of said to him well, this is your chance to kind of teach teach people um mm -hmm. talk to them speak to them so he kind of filmed himself and talked to people through the routines and stuff and it kind of went down really well fans were really enjoying it and I think that's another aspect of kind of showing his personality um showing what he's like as a person mm -hmm. um another thing is really just kind of once we've got time I've got kind of got some own personal um kind of projects to do for the club that I've kind of been putting off through the season. So I've got videos to make and things. Um, once I kind of get that out of the way, we'll do more, can do things like highlights reels and kind of look back on the season and stuff and still work with the boys, kind of get them to do, you know, like 
question like Q&As and stuff and interaction with the fans and we've got a few things up our sleeve um some bigger things as well that we're we're planning um we just don't want to do it all in one go so we're kind of spacing out a wee bit keeping people engaged and entertaining and hopefully before too long although there's no way of knowing we'll be back at some point I, um, I suppose you, you mentioned the MLS being a bit of a dream but what's next for Laura Brannan you don't it doesn't have to be to the detriment of Motherwell Football Club I'm sure they'll understand that you too have got ambitions like where where do you want to go where do you see yourself to be honest like I mean short term I look forward to what I'm doing at Motherwell and I, I'd love to do more stuff like the David Turnbull documentary I'd love to kind mm-hmm. of do more in-depth things um more exciting things like that behind a camera um, and test out some more editing, sort of test my editing skills. Personally speaking, moving on in the future, um, yeah, MLS is a, as a aim for me down the, the line. It really depends on how I can get there. Um, I think maybe going to a, maybe a big club in London might help um, mm-hmm. or a bigger club abroad. Staying in club football, I think, will help me. Taking my motherboard experience and maybe imposing that on a bigger club somewhere down the line could help. And then in turn, the higher up I can do that and the, the more I go, the more experience I get. Hopefully sets me up to do some sort of production work in America in the future. So, I mean, I'm not adverse to travelling around. I'm still young. I, I want to kind of see the world, test myself and don't want to settle down yet. So do I still you, want to you, get there. Have you got a preferred location or club in America? Because mine would be New York, Miami, LA. Anything else I'd be like, ah, okay. New York would be an absolute dream. <laughs> that would be incredible. You imagine me hooking up with Ronnie Dyla and Gary McKay uh, Stevens. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot all about that. I with my, all about that. With my New York apartment overlooking Central Park. You know, I've, I've, I've not been planning this in my head at all. I mean, what, I don't know what you're talking uh, about. Uh, I'm not having that second thought. <laughs> <laughs> I would, um, you, I would um, love to work for Real Madrid because I speak, I'm completely fluent in Spanish. People might say, how come you don't work for Barca? And I'd say, I speak Catalan, but not to the point I could work in their media team, so I'd have to settle for Real Madrid instead. <laughs> I'd actually, I'd love to try even Germany as well. Um, mm. Just really what I was saying earlier for the, the experience of things. I feel like Germany just kind of get it. Germany is a country in general that they're just, they're so switched on. Everything they do is good, and especially in football. Um, they're just, they're so with it. So that would be quite cool. I, I don't speak German though, so I'm not sure how far my expertise could really go. But then the thing is, these clubs have recognised as they have got their social media accounts that are predominantly and fully in English, that actually their biggest audience is their global audience in which they have to engage mm-hmm. with them in English. Could be the same for any club in Spain or Italy as well. So they're actually, you, n- you never ever know because it's, it's, it's sports and football media is constantly evolving and people just want to consume and the audience grows and grows. With English being the main business language, you could you could end up anywhere. So I'm quite interested to see where it takes you. Yeah, so am I. <laughs> I know. I'm sure you're far more interested in me, but I will have a, a degree a degree of interest to observe. There you go, Laura. This is this has been great fun. I've really really enjoyed this. Uh, it's, it's great to get this insight. So thanks again for for well, giving me your time. And shall I, shall I tell our listeners the absolute arse of it that we spoke for 15 minutes and I had forgotten to press record. It's the first time I've ever, ever done that. We've all been there. You, you, oh. you didn't go back and ask me the question I thought you were going to ask me. What did you think I was going to ask you? About you the, which players were uh, cooperative and which players weren't. Do you know what? I felt because we touched on Lenny. Let's just finish on this. It's been good. <laughs> 
players that were cooperative and players that weren't. You can just tell me who were who were the nightmares because I guessed correctly. Anthony Stokes was a nightmare, and Joe Ledley. You said Joe Ledley was fifty fifty. Who else were the the ones that were a pain? Um, I'm going to start off by saying who was good because I'm going to give right, them credit. Okay. Yeah. Um, I thought um, Chris Commons was cooperative. Samaras, Key, even Wanyama as well. Um, they were boys that I really got on with from the perspective of they were cooperative, and I very much in my role, I um, I need boys to be cooperative, so I kind of judge them based on that alone. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> More than anything. Um, so, we were, so, like, a player could have scored the winner against Rangers and they die in minutes in the oh. cup final. And you're saying, ah, it was a good goal, but he kept me waiting for 40 minutes last week when I needed a piece for exactly the Celtic game. <laughs> Absolutely, exactly that. You, you think, oh my God, he scored a hat trick. I'm going to have to talk to him on Monday. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> yeah, that was a completely different oh. perspective I watched. <laughs> um, so, in you terms just of said. Not- can I guess? Because you just said there about oh, he scored a hat trick, which makes me believe that Gary, <laughs> Gary Hooper was difficult to work with. Gary Hooper, the bane of my life. <laughs> <laughs> oh, trying to get that boy to do an interview. Oh my god. <laughs> See, I would, I would suggest, and pe- some people, players or people really deep within the game might scoff at this and say, "What the fuck do you know?" But I would suggest that any player who isn't cooperative in, in every sense that they're obligated to wouldn't go on to become the best players because I believe that lack of professionalism would shine through in other aspects of their game because you look at Pep Guardiola, for example, said he will do anything that he's asked to do. When he asked to do it at Amazon, yep, I'll do it. Asked to go to the Middle East, yep, I'll do it. Asked to go to America, yep, I'll do it because he accepts that he is merely an employee of a larger organisation. Of course, and and what I used to always say to the boys whenever they were... um, like cosmic problems or anything and I'd say to them like well first and foremost I've got a deadline to meet I am working for the same club as you we're all yeah. working towards the same thing um you've got your deadlines and you've got your responsibilities I have mine um and we're just in different departments we're both working for the club and another thing I'd say to them was like it's a compliment see if I want to speak to you it's because you're doing something right you're mm-hmm. playing well just now you're doing something good I'm not wanting to speak to whoever's sitting on the bench right now or whoever's in the, on the treatment table because they're not winning us games. Yeah. Um, they're not making a difference. The, the fans want to hear from you. So, yeah, you'd, you'd kind of talk them through it and stuff. And some of the boys just needed to hear that. Some of the boys just needed to kind of understand it from your perspective. Um, and they were a lot more cooperative. Yeah. Others would just terrorise you for the fun of it. Um, <laughs> which depending on what your mood was like and how close to deadline you were and how what kind of mood your boss was in that day, yeah. um, you could put up with it. Somebody, oh, my God, I had one day with Paul Slane, who, <laughs> um, as you can imagine <laughs> what he's like, um, he would not do an interview for me and at all. And he would terrorise me to the death and to the point where it was, it was Lewis Toshney and one other youth boy, I can't remember who the other youth boy was at the time, the, the two of them got him in the back of the car sat him in the back seat and locked him in the car and said, Laura, come out to the car, sit in the back seat and do your interview there because we're not driving <laughs> off until he's done the interview. That was good for them. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then there's other times where, like, um, James Forrest, for example, um, lovely boy, um, so, such a nice boy, but he's crap at doing an interview, or at least mm. he was back then because he was so young at the time. He was still fresh in a team at that age, um, hadn't really had the experience doing interviews. And he would... He'd always do them for me, he'd always be cooperative, but then he'd sit there and he'd, he'd stop the interview and just go, you're having an absolute nightmare here. 
And I'd be like, well, yeah, you're not giving me any answers. You're giving me one word answers. And I'm trying, trying my hardest here, but you're not giving me anything. And then he'd go, oh, just, just make it up. Like, I trust you. Just say whatever you want me. Just write whatever you want. And I'm like, no, that doesn't help. <laughs> I have to find out what your favourite movie is. I'm not going to just like make it up for you. <laughs> There's a lot of creative license there, though. I would have, I would have ran, ran with that and had a wee bit of fun if it was allowing you to, to say it. Well, but people, I suppose people want to know about Scott Brown because he's obviously seen as the figurehead of the club and somebody who strikes the balance almost perfectly with complete seriousness and application and yeah. professionalism, but also by being a complete head case. What was he like? Oh, yeah. It was, um, yeah, you either... Some days it was a complete nightmare, and other days it was absolutely fantastic. And it's because he's such a, a clown, such a joker, hmm. and he would see it as the fun and games, and he would push it as far as he could to terrorise you, um, and you know, to the point where you were like pulling your hair out, and you'd be like putting on your serious mode and going, right, I actually really need you now, and he would still take it ten steps further <laughs> until he went, right, okay, fine, okay, I'll do the interview, and yeah. then when he got it. Uh, you're good. And you'd be like, why did you not do that for me seven hours ago? I remember speaking to somebody who was working at Celtic Park, and uh, it, this would have been, so it was the twenty seventh, I think, or the twenty eighth of December, two thousand eleven, and we played Rangers at Celtic Park, and Joel Edley scored with a header just after, uh, just at the start of the second half, and there was horrendous like gale force winds, and parts of the slates of the roof had come off at Celtic Park, and everything. And the team, I think, was congregated in just not the reception as you walk into Celtic Park mm-hmm. through the door, the glass doors, and the phone rang, and Scott Brown answered it, and uh, like it was some woman saying, like, I'm just want to check is the game on because there's conflicting reports in the media, and he's went, no, the game's off, so you need to phone, you need to email <laughs> Peter, <laughs> you need to email Peter Lowell to get your refund. That could have been sensationalised or embellished or whatever, but that's the story yeah. I was told, and I definitely believe it. <laughs> definitely no I mean thing is but my time with Celtic there were so many boys yeah they got on with you didn't and the thing was it was weird because the guy I worked with at the time Mark who also worked in Celtic View with me mm-hmm. he had his boys that he got on with better um and ones that would always do things for him um and he'd have nightmares with the ones that got on with me and it was just ones that we kind of struck up a relationship with and mm-hmm. kind of had that same kind of on that, that that side with them um but then it comes down to just experience as well. I was so young when I was at Celtic. I was so inexperienced as well. And I didn't know how to handle players messing me around, mm-hmm. sneaking out the back door because they didn't want to do an interview and stuff. And I learned so much from it to the point now where at Motherwell, I don't have the same problem. Yeah. And I dare say a big part of that is because there's not the same egos. Um, yeah. And genuinely, every boy in the Motherwell squad is lovely. And mm-hmm. I got on with all of them. And that is that is maybe one part of the difference. But I think the other part of it is I'm older and I'm more experienced and I just know how to deal with people now. And I've never had problems with them. Um, anything that we want to get done, they, they will do it for us. And they will yeah. not mess me around and they'll not leave me like, hanging or anything. As I say, I would dare say there is a, probably a strong correlation between somebody's conduct and that sense of sneaking out the back door and what they've gone on to achieve or do in the game or the, either the longevity or the continuity they've had at the highest level. So probably something for, for any young footballers to think about because that oh, level of application will spread. So it's like it's kind of like a bad apple within your own uh, approach or application to the game. So don't yeah. be a prick, man. Just, just give your interview. 
There was one time when I was, it was one of the London trips um, with David Turnbull for the documentary. We went down mm-hmm. twice and um, there was one time we were just sitting chatting about something and I was actually telling him stories about different players I dealt with at Celtic um, and I was telling him some of the horror stories of like what they would do to try and get out of interviews and stuff and he was like, what? They did, they did what? And he was really shocked by it and I was saying to him, I was like, and that's a lesson you not to do that like yeah, never I... be that <laughs> no, like what you do is very good what they did is very yeah, well. yeah. don't ever be them that's the thing it's just the kind of upbringing he's had at motherwell and it might just be him as a person as well but he was genuinely shocked at mm-hmm. me saying that and it just me kind of saying to him and i felt almost like motherlike where i was like don't you dare become that so whenever you sign for a big club and you move on in your career, don't let me ever hear stories of you sneaking out back doors. Because <laughs> then I'll be very disappointed in you. Of, with players that are, that are breaking through the game, I'm just absolutely continuous interviewing, but you're giving me wee nuggets to play with here, so apologies for that. But see, with players that, that do come through it, more provincial clubs, let's say, like Motherwell or a sort of they've got less luxury and you obviously have to fight a wee bit more and you have to get yourself into that first team and then it accelerates your development because you're playing against men and it's real football as opposed to just that developmental stage of your technical skills. Do you think, or, or no, I know this to be fact, but what has your experience been with seeing players maybe take their foot off the gas and then maybe not get to, to where they should be or just think, you know, I've played a couple of games in the Celtic first team and that's me, I've made it and then they they fade into nothingness. I don't want to name any names because it would be a bit unkind, but we all have, you know, we all know who who a lot of these players are. I mean, did you did you witness that? Could you pick up on that when you were dealing with them day to day? I couldn't, I can tell you off the top of my head anyone that I really think kind of let themselves go in that sense and let themselves down. Um, mm. There were obviously young boys that came through and thought they'd made it um, mm. and just had bad attitudes. I think also that kind of harks back to what we were saying about Tony Watt where I don't know if they had the same psychological guidance mm. to try and really kind of coach them in terms of keeping their feet on the ground. Whereas with Motherwell, you do see boys keep their feet on the ground. And it's, I mean, part of that will be because they are just like you and me. They, they're they not on big wages and they've not came from that big, starry, glitzy background where they're surrounded by superstars and they're, yeah. they are the superstar themselves. They are just down-to-earth boys who love playing football and... Are just they've got their chance and like Motherwell they don't Motherwell don't pay big wages they're not a big club in the context of things but everyone's in it for the same reason at Motherwell and they're all enjoying it as a team and no one's bigger than somebody else and sometimes you maybe see it with somebody's maybe come in from down south and they're they're used to a different environment they're used to different players around the team with them and they'll kind of come in and they'll be like oh this is this is different and you kind of mm-hmm. you kind of tell them some home truths about what it's going to be like and then they see it for themselves and mm-hmm. it was the same as Celtic I mean I remember I was there when Freddie Lundberg signed and his first game was Berwick Rangers <laughs> <That's> <laughs> so was that <laughs> and to think what he must have thought going into that dressing room <laughs> I know it's really? funny that, that perception I remember back in I think this was 2003 and Terry Butcher would have been Motherwell manager and the day before I'd been around about Celtic Park um, so my uncle works uh, as an agent and uh he represented Alec Burns, who'd signed for Motherwell, and there was somebody else, and I can't remember who it was, and Terry Butcher, had, he, had, he had a really good relationship with Terry Butcher, so he came over to me after the press conference, he was really lovely, and he said, come on, I'll show you in the dressing room. 
And he actually showed me, he went, see that hole there? He went, that's where I punched a hole in the wall or I punched, I punched a hole in the door when we were getting beat at half time. And he was showing me, and me as a 12-year-old was distinctly unimpressed because I'd just come to Celtic Park where, again, I had been so lucky to be given a sort of tour around about. There was the gym at Celtic Park that the youth team were working in. He took Tommy Burns, I should say, sorry, took us through and gave us this tour. And I just was like, oh, my God, I cannot believe this. So Martin O'Neill was manager at the time. Henrik was kicking about somewhere. I knew he was in the vicinity. And I'm like, this is amazing. This is in pre-season. Then we go to Fur Park and I'm like, what the fuck's this? Let's take this. And that, as a wee uninformed, inexperienced wee fud at the age of 12. But if that's my perception, then as you say, what is the perception of players that are coming up for England and then they're walking into Fur Park and it's more humble surroundings than maybe, obviously, yeah. than what the money provides down there. So anybody, I suppose, as you say, that is playing at Motherwell and is still there and is thriving really is doing it for the love of the game um, I don't know how we got there for me asking about youth players having poor attitudes but there you go that's just that's how conversations can sometimes just extrapolate within themselves uh, is there anything else that you want to pick up on or anything that I've not touched on I forgot to ask you or anything you want to plug or get across no I don't think so I think we've covered a lot I have an hour and 40 minutes where is uh, where, no. can, where can people find you if they, if they want to find you on social media and follow your your career as you rise to the head of communications for FC New York or whatever I've got <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can get me on Twitter uh, my handle is at underscore Laura Brannan and you can follow me there that's where I kind of have all my football conversations and my moans and my what I'm proud of and what I'm happy with and, what, and what's not. Well, I hope we've answered questions for football fans, I suppose, Motherwell fans, um, Celtic fans will have enjoyed hearing uh, about some of those wee anecdotes. And to fans of other clubs, Rangers, Hearts, Hibs, I'm sorry that I didn't cover anything <laughs> for you, but it just wasn't relevant in this story. But please don't take that as me being anti-Rangers or Hearts or Hibs, because I love all Scottish football teams. Definitely not, cross my fingers. Uh, hopefully people listen that's okay to take a laugh and they're not brain dead because I'm only joking uh, well Laura thanks very much for your time and this is this has been magic thank you very much I've enjoyed it crying hey bacon got your stick